Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Cabinets Experience. Here at Cabinets HR, we have some exciting news to share. We are doing a rewards-based crowdfunding campaign for Cabinets HR starting March 2nd. We are doing this rewards-based crowdfunding campaign to continue the build-out of Cabinets HR. Our rewards include Cabinets HR t-shirts, social media outreach for you and your company, ebooks, webinars, and more. You can go to the Cabinets HR Indiegogo link at https colon backslash backslash cabinetshr.co slash crowdfunding to donate and for more info. Thank you for your time today and remember to be great every day. This is the Jason Cabinets Experience hosted by Jason Cabinets. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cabinets Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cabinets. Here at Jason Cabinets, we're currently running a crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo. Please go to HTPPS. Cabinetshr.co slash crowdfunding to donate and share. Our guest today is Shauna Almachage. Shauna, are you ready to be great today? I'm ready. Shauna doesn't have a rags to riches story, nor can she claim to be an entrepreneur since childhood. She grew up wanting to be a teacher and had a secret passion for writing. After obtaining two bachelor's degrees in four years, she struggled to find work in the ailing economy of 2011 and turned to freelance writing. It didn't take long for her to discover that her abilities as a writer were highly valued by marketers. And only a year later, she took she had taken a position as director of a digital content of position as director of digital content for agency. Shauna, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So Shauna, so talk about wanting to be a teacher. Was that from like a like quote unquote a childhood green or something you, in high school? Or how did that come about? It was. I was really little. Uh, I think I was in the third grade and I used to ask my teacher if I could skip my recess and go back and help the second grade teacher um, during my recess to be like a teacher's aide. And she let me make little lesson plans. And I just I absolutely loved it. And that continued when I went to high school. I did a program where I got to be a preschool teacher for one year during high school. And that's what I went to college for. But that's not how my degree actually turned out. So I have to ask, when you, when you like skipping recess, the great papers, I have to find, make while well, the kids making fun of you? Probably they should have, but I don't <laughs> remember. Maybe they were, but I don't remember that because I just, I loved what I did. So you got two bachelor degrees in two years. I mean, that's that's pretty that's pretty um pretty good. That's pretty inspirational. Like, I, how how driven or focused were you to do that? I mean, were you taking like twenty four hour course loads for <laughs> semester or? So there's a kind of a secret to this. So I got two bachelor's degrees in four years, and the first thing that I did was really crap out in college. I was supposed to take my teacher exams starting in year three, getting my teacher degree. 
And I didn't test well. And taking the exams completely terrified me. So what ended up happening was I skipped them altogether. And instead of a double major with a a major in education and a major in history. I took the major in history, but a minor in education. I did summer classes and I got my degree in three years instead of four. You know, then I graduated, didn't take those teacher tests. And lo and behold, that degree in history wasn't very useful getting jobs in the real world. I know that that. might surprise you. (laughs) That might be, that might surprise you, but it's true. And I knew I had to go back and I wanted to get something that was going to be more relevant. So I decided on a professional writing degree because there was a lot to it. There was writing for business, writing for websites, writing proposals, uh, all all sorts of, of different writing skills. So I thought that I would be much more valuable. I would have a lot more to give. And the secret there is because I already had that degree, All of my core classes were done. So when I applied to the next school, all of my uh, credits transferred over and all I had to do was one year worth of classes to finalize that second degree. Well, basically you hacked the system. I hacked the system a little bit. Yeah. But two bachelor's degrees is not, again, as valuable as you think it would be. (laughs) Uh, it, It was it was a hard time when when I got out of college for the second time, although I was a little bit better prepared. So, Shauna. What makes someone a good marketer? Or a better question, what makes someone a bad marketer? That's a great question. I think what makes someone a bad marketer is going just too far one way or another on the spectrum because we've got really creative people and then we've got really analytical people and you're good at marketing when you can combine those two things. But when you're just really all focused on the creative or you're just really all focused on the numbers, you're missing one key component of what's really essential to make any kind of marketing thrive. You have to be able to marry those two things. And that's, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. I think it's very rare to find someone who's both analytical and creative, right? I mean, those, those are rare breeds, I think. Yeah, it's, it's hard for sure. And that's why, I mean, the best marketers have both for sure, but you can also have teams of marketers, you know, people that fill in the gaps for one another. And that really helps make us all better in terms of our marketing. Donna, from your experience, what are startups or small businesses getting wrong or right about marketing? The first thing that I always see is just their perceptions around marketing. So for small businesses or startups, they inevitably follow gurus or they've seen case studies or, you know, they hear how other people have done it. So they're thinking, well, I have to do Google AdWords because that's just something that you do. I have to be blogging because that that's really important for marketing. So we kind of have all of these ideas about what we think will make us successful or what we think is essential. And those preconceptions really hurt the startups and the small businesses, because instead of looking at 
their budget, their goals, their resources, and formulating a strategy based off of those things. They're looking at what everybody else is doing. And what got one company to their success, you know, the point that they're at is not necessarily going to be the same strategy that's going to get your brand there. I think one challenge too for startups, you know, like most marketing, like SEO, that kind of stuff, isn't like a, you know, one day and you're, you know, expert, like it takes six months to do it, right? So you bring in on an SEO person, and six months later, they haven't done the job, but you, but you have no idea, right? You have to wait six months to figure out they're not doing the job right. It's like, I think that's a challenge too. Well, that speaks to another great point that in terms of marketing, so I work with mostly startup companies and there's two things that they don't have a lot of, time and money. So something like SEO, where you need to dump time and money into it to get results it's not the best strategy in the beginning. It might be a great long-term strategy, but if you need to get new users for your software or you need to grow your email list for e-commerce, it's not something that's going to work quickly. So that's where kind of figuring out what the strategy is that's best for your resources, your budget, and your startup goals is really essential. There's a question for you. Like when you, you to start a new business, everyone says... You have to focus on marketing or you have to focus on sales. You have to focus on product like like, you know, all these full time jobs. How do you recommend a, a entrepreneur like balance all that stuff, all these focuses he's supposed to have or she's supposed to have? I think it really depends on what kind of entrepreneur you are. So I'm a service-based entrepreneur. I work for startups, but I'm not a startup myself. A lot of what I do is not marketing for myself, it's sales, which is crazy seeing that I'm a marketer. I don't do a lot of marketing for myself. But if you have a software business or a product-based business, then you really need to focus on marketing and brand awareness because if nobody knows your business exists, they can't buy from you. And that's a problem that a lot of founders come up against in the beginning. They have this build it and they will come attitude. You know, they, they know how great what they built is. So they think if they put it out into the world, people are going to see it. They're going to understand that it solves this big problem and they'll start purchasing. But that's never, almost never what happens. You have to work on that brand awareness piece in the beginning. And a lot of companies are just going straight for the sale instead of focusing on actually getting the word out there in the first place. Yeah. Like how many people build a website? I have my website out there. That's all I, all I need. How many people say that? Oh my gosh, too many. I think more along the lines of people being on social media these days than building building the website. And they just can't figure out why it's not working, <laughs> like why it's not leading to sales. And it is a brand awareness channel, but in order to do well on social media, you have to be social. And most of us are not doing that. So... What does it mean to be social and social? I've heard that term before. What does that really mean? Well, I think most of us will use social media as a dumping ground, as a billboard. So we've got this great piece of content that we want to promote. So we put it up there. We have our hashtags. We have all of that stuff. But then when we put it up on social media and nothing happens, we're confused. Having people find you organically is not easy. 
anymore. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure it was ever easy, but as the algorithms evolve and change, um, things aren't happening organically like they were doing 12 months ago or three years ago. So being social on social media is really creating engagement. So instead of waiting for somebody to comment on your post and then responding to their comment, going out, finding new accounts, sending them DMs, commenting on their posts, you know, liking, sharing, saving, all of that kind of thing. It's it's really engaging on the platform, not just using it as a billboard to promote your own things. Well, isn't that like, it, it, can that become like a time suck almost? Like how much time do you recommend someone to do that every day, like an hour a day, two hours a day? Like, so they say some time apart each week or to just do it when they feel like it? Well, again, so it can be a total time could suck. That's for sure. But what it comes down to is your resources and your budget and your growth goals. Because I know some e-commerce brands who spent a lot of time doing that in the beginning, and they were able to create such good relationships online that it really just boosted their business when they launched their actual product. But then talking about you know, a software company that I work for, they actually have a budget to put into advertising. It doesn't make sense to pay someone to focus on the social media that way. And the software, to be just point blank, it's just not as sexy as the e-commerce product, right? We're talking about all these features of the software and it just, it's not as appealing for a visual platform like Instagram as the whole production for the e-commerce businesses. So you see, you see some companies out there that are only on Facebook, only on LinkedIn, only on Instagram. Others are everywhere, right? Is there a perfect answer to this or is this depends on the company, what they want to do? Well, it depends who your end user is, right? Like you need to be where your end user is. So <laughs> I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't recommend anyone be on Facebook because everybody needs to be on Facebook, but organically, there's just no reach on Facebook anymore. So you're going to really only get attention on that platform if you're paying for it. Uh, for certain businesses, Instagram does really well. A lot of D2C businesses, um, even B2C, but B2B does much better on platforms like LinkedIn because it's a business platform. That doesn't mean that you can't find those Instagram, but it's definitely a different environment. So I would say just really think about who you're trying to talk to and where your ideal customer spends their time. Yeah, I know on Facebook and like recently, maybe uh, maybe a few months ago, I actually got a lot of like uh, posts from different people I knew, and now it's like they just dis- disappeared, right? And I look, mm-hmm. and they're still posting. I just don't see it anymore for whatever reason. The algorithm is constantly changing, and it continues to devalue organic content. Um, where what used to really play into it heavily was how often you viewed that person's content or that page's content, how often you engaged with it, you know, liked, comment, shared. You will see more posts from groups because Facebook prioritizes groups because that's a feature of their platform, but they don't have much incentive to feed you the organic content anymore, especially from businesses. Okay. So next, talk about the importance of storytelling. The importance of storytelling. So we as consumers behave so much differently now than we did a couple of years ago. 
you probably remember Sears and Radio Shack and Macy's and going for trips to the mall, right? You could go into a store and you could discover something new. That's not happening as much as it used to in a really big way. People are now shopping for convenience or connection. So the ultimate place to shop for convenience is somewhere like Amazon. You're going to get something quick. You're going to be able to find anything under the sun. And it's going to be delivered to your door faster than you could Google it and go out and find it, you know, where, where you live locally. So that works great for that business. And for a lot of us, the convenience part is important. But the other thing is connection. And this is where storytelling really comes in. Most of us will spend two or three times the amount on the same product from a small business than we would on Amazon if we felt a connection to that brand. So it could be a woman-led brand. It could be a brand with sustainable business practices. It could be an eco-friendly brand. It could be a brand that gives back to charity, right? They donate their profits. Um, there's a lot of value-based things that we talk about in our storytelling when it comes to the brand and because the way that, that consumers are shopping is different, that's where small brands can really get ahead is by using that storytelling to really connect with their cost, their customer, their audience, and give them a reason to be a brand advocate. So let's say there's a small business owner out there. He knows he needs, he or she needs to know he needs to do storytelling and improve the brand, but like they're introverted, introverted, they're not personable, they have no charisma. What advice you have for them? If you just pass that on to someone else who's better at that? Well, if you have the resources to do it, then you might as well. If it's in your budget to pass it off to someone else, then I would say go for it. If not, I would say maybe you need to get out of your comfort zone a little <laughs> bit. It, it's hard. It's hard, but it's something that we all have to do. Um, you could pre-make stories for Instagram or things like that on Canva for social posts that talk about your story. You don't have to be on camera all the time, but it definitely helps. Fauna, can you talk about your company for a little bit, like how it came about, what's going on with it right now and your, and your vision for it? Sure. So, you know, I told you that I had all this trouble um, getting going to school to be a teacher. And then when I graduated for the second time in 2011, the economy was just tanked. I couldn't get anyone to look at my resume, much less take me on for an interview. So somebody in my family had suggested virtual assisting. I had a good skill set for it. So I went on to Elance, which is now Upwork. Elance doesn't exist anymore. And I got my first virtual assistant job really quick. And that just snowballed. I was doing more and more virtual assisting, more writing jobs. And finally, I got picked up by this marketing company that needed a content writer. And it was more like a full-time gig for this company, which felt stable. I was really excited about it. I came on as the director of digital content. And that's when I realized that the, the writing piece that I was doing was just a small piece of the marketing puzzle. And there was so much more to it. So I really took that time to, to learn and be mentored and really hone my skills as a marketer. So I had a few other marketing jobs 
before 2017 when the director of that company actually asked me to come on full time as his second in command. And I was really excited about it. This was my dream job. I was going to help shape and grow the company. And at first it was great. And then after a couple of months, things started to really get sour. We were taking on new team members that we didn't necessarily need. I was getting complaints from the clients that the deliverables weren't being met. And I was just not in a position where I could do anything about it. So I brought it up to my boss a couple times. And then finally, six months in, I wake up one morning and I go try to log in for work and my email's gone. All my files are gone. My access to everything is gone. And he calls me two hours later and he says, I'm sorry, you're just not a culture fit for this company anymore. And I was so <laughs> blown away. And I, I was devastated at first. You know, I really thought that this was going to be it for me. And as you know, my husband is in the Air Force. This was three weeks before he was going to deploy to the Middle East. It was his first deployment. And I had three young kids at home. And I just kind of decided that this was the moment I was going to do this for myself. I didn't like how he was doing it. So I was going to do it and I was going to do something that had integrity that I could be proud of. And instead of being a marketing agency, what I saw was kind of this gap where people actually felt like they had you as a team member. And that was really the difference because when startups or small businesses hire out to an agency, it's kind of a separate team doing things. I wanted my companies to feel like they had a marketing director in-house who was as dedicated to their success as they were. And that's what I set out to build. It took me about a year to figure out that I was a fractional marketing director. I had to work for a couple startups before I realized that's the space where I belonged. But when I found that, it was like the light bulb went off. It was really the perfect fit of the kind of work that I was doing and just realizing that there was an exact need for it in this market. Is there a limit on the number of companies you're going to work for? Yes and no. Uh, I think that it's important to keep my client roster low so that they all get individual attention from me. You know, I'm not an agency. I don't want th this thing to scale in a huge way. However, you know, as I grow my team little by little, we do it in a slow comfortable way that allows me to take on more work so I can continue to take clients as long as it's within the bandwidth of myself and my team. So uh, uh, on your website, it says that you don't get a, you don't do contracts. You, you, everything's month to month, correct? Mm -hmm, that's true. So as far as running your business, how does that affect you? Like not knowing if they're going to take you on the next month, not having a contract. Yeah. How's that? So you know, I, I think it can be scary, but I have really strong belief on this because if I do my job well, I don't need a contract because they're going to want to come back next month. I, my longest running client at this point has been on board with me for two and a half years and my business has only been live for three and a half years. So, you know, I just believe if I, if I treat them right and I do good work that they're going to come back, I don't think that it's valuable to have a company stuck in a three-month contract or a six-month contract and they decide it's not 
working well and they tell me that, but then I'm forcing them to stay into the contract. That's not a good business relationship. We're probably not going to do our best work together. And I think that that is a real having that flexibility is really helpful for startups because they know if they don't have the budget or if they change their minds, they can be out at the end of the month. And, you know, I've had some people who have done that and we maintain really great relationships and they refer, they refer business to me and it just keeps everything really positive. And I think that it maintains the integrity of my business. Sean, like I'm a big believer that every customer is not a good customer. What's your process for qualifying your customers to make sure that they're a good match for you and your services? Well, there's a couple of things. It has to be the right business model. Um, I give this example all the time of this company that I had interviewed with a few years ago. It was a dance studio. That a dance studio in and of itself is not a good business model for me. It's not scalable. They're going to be limited by their studio space, how many people they can fit in. They could be limited by the physical location. There's only so much market share in XYZ city. Uh, But what they were doing is they had this very specific type of dance that they had kind of created themselves and they were creating a streaming platform with it. So it was a membership model that is highly scalable. So finding the right business models for me, where the company is scalable and really has that growth opportunity uh, is, is super important. Another thing is really just the attitude of the founder. I really love working with founders that are, definitely dedicated and passionate about what they do, but they see me as the expert. If a founder comes in and wants to micromanage everything that I'm doing, I know that we're not setting ourselves up for success because everyone's going to have opinions, but if they can't let go long enough to let me test different things and try some creative new approaches, then they're probably going to be stuck in the same place that they were when they hired me a month or three months ago. So when, a company, when you sign up with a company, do these companies expect you to like take part in all their meetings, become, you know, do everything that the company does, or are you pretty much a standalone with everything? Uh, I do a lot of things on my own. Uh, I have a weekly meeting set with the founders, and it really depends on how much they need it. One of my founders, we have our set weekly meeting, and we usually have one extra meeting at some point to check in. I have another one of my founders, the software company that I mentioned I had been with for two and a half years, and I haven't met with him in months. We're on Slack, and anytime we need approval for a project or we want to chat through some ideas on messaging, we, we talk back and forth on the Slack channel, and we don't have a recurring meeting. We haven't in months now. So how deep they want me in the company how much they need me to do also depends on the stage of their startup. Because when startups are new, they usually don't have a lot of team members. They have to have team members that are really scrappy and kind of wear a lot of different hats. So the companies that I work for usually have less than 10 team members. Can you talk a little bit about how expansive marketing is? Like is inbound, outbound, digital, SEO, on and on and on. I don't think a lot of people... I think a lot of people just say, oh, it's marketing is way more than that, right? 
I don't know if there's enough time to even have that conversation. There's so much. Um, Okay, let's start at the top. So you said inbound, outbound. Inbound is the term, I think it was coined by HubSpot. It's definitely HubSpot's bread and butter is, is the inbound marketing thing. And it's basically the idea that you're not going out and being disruptive. You're putting value out into the world, whether it's with your content or your SEO and your leads are coming to you. Outbound is considered to be outdated because it's disruptive, right? That could be like mailers, that could be advertising. The hard truth that I think anyone needs to understand is that the best marketing approach includes all of these things. We, I want to say most of the startups, but the truth is all of the startups that I work with can't just engage in inbound marketing because they don't have the time or financial resources to wait for an inbound uh, tactic like SEO to work in terms of brand awareness. They have to get ads out there. They have to be a little bit disruptive. Otherwise, they're not creating brand awareness fast enough to actually make themselves profitable before they run out of capital. It's not like a small business where you have to make a certain amount of money each month to pay your employees, to pay the rent, to keep the lights on. Startups usually start in the negative because they're in putting a bunch of capital in it and they have to get to the point where they're covering the costs and then they want to get above those costs and start making profits. So in terms of marketing, I think that you really have to have both sides of the coin. Uh, I read an article on Medium the other day that said things like sending mailers out are actually going to be a huge tactic in the coming months. It's something that a lot of marketers have kind of just pushed to the side and really forgotten about because it's disruptive. We don't want to send mail to people's houses. It's expensive. They didn't ask for it. But Among the pandemic, everybody's been home, everybody's had their faces and their phones, and getting a piece of mail in your mailbox instead of an ad on Facebook is actually kind of a novel experience. So it's almost so out of practice that it becomes a new and interesting way to market to people again. Can you talk about what's a CRM and when should I start, start looking at CRMs? Like a like the customer relationship manager? Yeah. yeah. I don't use a ton of those. Um, HubSpot is the bigger one. Um, Active Campaign is the email marketing software that I use, and you can manage leads in there as well. Um, it really depends on which kind of business which kind of business model. I think, you know, like the software company that I work with uses HubSpot because they have to manage the relationship with the customer all the way through the pipeline. Um, I have used a pipe drive in the, fa- in the past. I really liked that one. And that one's pretty affordable. Donna, can you tell us some, some of the marketing people that you follow? Uh, Stacy Tushel has been my mentor for a long time. I love that she started with a brick and mortar business and then moved into the online space. I think that's 
so interesting because a lot of the times you see people just one way or the other and being able to have experience for for both sides, like an actual physical business and then an online business is, is really cool. And um, I can't think of his name right now. The author of Story Brand. I love his work. I sound silly now. I can't think of it. Uh, but Story Brand is probably one of the best marketing books I have ever read, hands down. Donna, you you run a Facebook group too, right? Yeah, I do. I have the Facebook group. We're starting to uh, phase that out and move to Patreon since the podcast started. And talking about the podcast, how long have you been doing the podcast? A matter of weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, especially amid the pandemic, networking has been hard. As you know, I'm in a foreign country right now. Uh, My husband's in the Air Force. I have four kids. My schedule is not always flexible to to be networking. And networking is a really important part of business. And there's a lot of Facebook groups out there. And I just find that they're, they're very superficial in the way that they connect people. I wanted to find a way where I could actually meet with amazing startup founders and and learn from them and have great conversations about how they took the company from idea to a a profitable brand. And the stories are great, but also hearing about their growth strategy, I think is so important for, for people who are coming up and trying to do similar things themselves. So back in end of January, I want to say, I just went for it. I bought the website. I connected with a a designer to get some branding done. I just started sending out emails to some of my clients, to some of my old clients, to founders that I admire and ended up getting about 15 yeses. And I've just been recording like crazy for the past month. I launched with five episodes and it's just been a really wonderful experience being able to have those conversations and share it with the world. That's good to hear. So next, let's talk about your unhealthy obsession with the soft drink, Coca-Cola. <laughs> What's that all about? Oh my gosh. So back in the day when I was in high school, I, I usually had two jobs. I've always been a pretty driven person. And especially for the summers when we were at a school, I would have two jobs. And a friend of mine from high school got me this waitressing job at a restaurant where he was a cook. And I could not get into coffee. And all of the other waitresses there thought I was insane because you start your shift at like 6.30 in the morning. And I just, I needed the caffeine boost, but I couldn't drink coffee. And I started drinking Coca-Cola from the the, uh, soda machines. And that was my morning drink. And that's how I stayed caffeinated during the day. It's not exactly a healthy drink, but still I'm in my thirties now. I still can't get into coffee. And that's like my go-to drink to keep me caffeinated. And as I've gotten older, 
I've really fallen in love with their branding. If you look back uh, like at a comparison of Coca-Cola and Pepsi over the years, Pepsi has had like a rebrand every decade. Coca-Cola looks exactly the same for, for now to a long time ago. And I, from a marketer's perspective, I find it so interesting how their branding has stood the test of time, their messaging. And I just, I love that, you know, around their brand. So yes, I find their brand fascinating. And I'm also really addicted to their soda, which has been a new experience in Germany because they don't use high fructose corn syrup over here. So it is not the Coca-Cola I have come to know and love. Yes, definitely different. So how, how long have you and your family been in Germany? Uh, we've been here since August. So six, August. seven months. So how, how was the COVID over there? I'm, I'm guessing there's a pretty more there's tighter restriction there than the United States. It's tough. Uh, so back in November, they went on a lockdown and then it's just progressively gotten more intense since then. <laughs> a couple days before Christmas break, they said that they were closing down schools and that we probably shouldn't expect our kids to go back to school in the new year. So it was end of February when our kids were allowed to go back to school. So they had Christmas break and then a good month and a half where we were doing remote learning. Yeah, I know like everyone wouldn't want to do remote work, right? Oh, remote work's so great, but it was remote work. It was remote work plus you no know, teacher kids be a babysitter on and on. Right. So I, I don't think this remote work is what everybody wanted. No, it, I love working remotely. I've been doing it my entire career, but working remotely while the kids are working remotely is a special kind of hell for sure. And I love my kids. I have four of them. They're great human beings, but I don't want them in my office all day. while I'm trying to get work done for sure. Has COVID affect your business in a positive or negative way? I think that's a, that's actually a really hard question. About a month after COVID hit, um, I had a completely full client roster and I lost every single client except one. And that was terrifying. Uh, you know, it reduced my income significantly and I just, I couldn't find new work for months and months. And I just held on with that one client and then all of a sudden, come the fall, I had people who I had done sales calls with back in the spring, six months before, that were calling me up and they were like, okay, I'm ready to get serious about it. Let's do it now. So I think there was a lot of panic in the beginning of the pandemic about what businesses were going to do for money. They wanted to cut any cost that they could. And that hurt my business. But as more confidence was built in the economy and business started to get maybe not back to normal, um, but things started inching closer to, to normalcy, that has been a real boon for my business because a lot of companies are seeing that they're not going to be able to grow without the marketing piece. It's, it's the missing piece of the puzzle. So a lot of companies have had renewed interest in the past couple of months in terms of building a successful marketing program for themselves. And are you by yourself, you have people on your team to help you out with everything? I have two contractors on my team. And I guess they're both in the United States. Mm-hmm. 
So what kind of tools do you use? Like, the, like you know, you use Slack, Asana, like what kind of tools do you use over any company? Um, I like Slack. I will say that I am a huge fan of ClickUp now. Um, I like Trello. I use Trello for um, when we're setting up social media plans so we can kind of see things visually. And that is really helpful. But in terms of project management, ClickUp is pretty affordable and it's got so many different views. I like the Kaban view because I like being able to move things down the pipeline. So that's kind of like the Trello view where you say, you know, this is the project on the plate. It's in progress. It's under review. It's closed. So we kind of just move things down the pipeline. And I really enjoy that. My assistant likes to see things in list form. So she can take the same thing that I'm doing, turn it into a list. Um, I can track their hours through that program, which is really helpful. Um, yeah, ClickUp. I'm a big fan of ClickUp. And I would definitely suggest it for anybody for marketing or otherwise. It's a great project management tool. But Sean, as an entrepreneur, you know, and, you know, being a mother, military spouse, you have a lot going on. How do you prioritize stuff every day? You just, you have a plan you stick to or, or you have a list, you just wing it. What, what's your. That's a great question. I have a couple things that I do. So I decided early on in my business that while I am a mother that works from home, I'm not a work from home mom. I secured childcare for my kids early in my business because I didn't want to have my focus split. If I'm checking my emails all the time, I'm not giving my kids my full attention. If I'm paying attention to the kids, it's really easy to make a mistake on the client work because I'm not giving them my full attention. So the best way for me was to get that full-time childcare to make sure that I could separate those two things, create boundaries and make sure that when I'm at work, I'm hundred percent present. And when I'm with my kids, I'm hundred percent present. So that has been a big part of it. And that's been extra important with the pandemic <laughs> to set those boundaries. Um, another thing that I do is I got started with the full focus planner from Michael Hyatt this year. And I've really liked it. I sit down at the end of the day and, you know, I write out all my to do's for the next day and I set my top three priorities, the, the three things that absolutely have to get done. And that's really helped me stay on track and making sure that the, the priorities are always top of mind. So talk about this. It might be different than the Air Force. Well, first of all, how long have you been a military spouse? See, um, eight years, I eight think. Years. I, we were married. We were married before he went into the military. Okay. So it might be different than the Air Force. But in the Army, if you're a military spouse, you're expected to volunteer, help out on the base, you know, kind of stuff. Is it the same with the Air Force? You expect like to volunteer, like all that kind of stuff? I don't know. If that's what's expected, I'm in trouble because I have not followed the rules. So let me tell you, um, there are definitely key spouses who do a lot of work to keep the, the units together, to keep the spouses connected. And, you know, we're so lucky to have them. I am not one of them. I'm definitely not as involved with those type of things. Um, so I wouldn't say that it is as required in the Air Force. Okay. And I was going to bring the point, like, you know, all these military spouses, they're doing this work, you know, but they'll get paid. And then like, it's almost like volunteer work and it doesn't look, you know, 
I just wonder about that. So yeah. Next, what what you you talk about this a little bit, but for your company, are you going to keep a service base? You're going to try to do like a software app. You're just going to keep it like it is for now. For right now. I have every intention of keeping it service-based. I really love what I do. I would love to see the company expand in a few years when we move back to the U.S. But for right now, you know, there's all this talk about growing and scaling. And I think it's amazing when businesses do that. But there's nothing wrong with being in a good place and being happy with the place that you're at and just kind of leaning into that season of your business. I really love where my business is right now. And I think that there's going to be opportunities to grow it in the future, but I don't need to push it in that direction until I'm ready. I think with the pandemic, the kids, you know, my husband traveling for work, I love having the business be the size that it is. So I know that it's always manageable for me and that my clients are always getting the dedicated attention that they deserve. So back to military spouses. So, I, I mean, I did 25 years in the army and it's hard to be a military mm-hmm. spouse trying to find a job. An example I use all the time when I was in Italy for two years, every one of the baggers, we're talking about baggers, not even cash, but the baggers were military yeah. spouses. And they all have master's degrees, right? And so it was tough. But having said that, a lot of military spouses, you know, oh, woe is me. I can get a job. I have to move two years live and try. And that's like the probably majority of them, unfortunately, both male and female. But then, you know, quite a few like you and other ones I know go out and like start companies and do stuff like that. What advice do you have for military spouses like in that little, you know, chicken egg thing like that, where they want to do something that they're not really confident they can do anything based on where they're at? It's so true. For Air Force, we don't move as around, around as much as the Army do. So I really feel for the spouses that struggle in that kind of environment. Uh, we had friends where the spouse was a nurse. That's really hard to get a job if you knew that you were just moving in a couple of years. So especially for skilled professions like that, it can be tough. Um, now, there's other highly skilled professions that you can do online. And we're really lucky as the world is changing. And even before COVID, I don't think people understood how common remote work was. So for me, back in the day, I couldn't get anyone to take me on for a so-called regular job in a brick and mortar. And what worked really well was going to a marketplace like Elance or Upwork and just starting to get some work under my belt. So there's so many virtual assistant positions available. You could do things on social media. You could help somebody organize their calendar. You could use Canva to make graphics. There's so much opportunity if you're driven to really go out and look for it. And I think that a lot of people who didn't see entrepreneurship as a way to go growing up. I know I didn't. I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't realize that there were jobs other than teacher and firefighter and the person who worked the cash register at the grocery store, which I thought was a really cool job, by the way. Uh, I didn't realize that that entrepreneurship was a thing. It was kind of something that found me. So 
For military spouses, I think going out and looking for how you can use your current skill set, you know, you could just work online a couple hours a week, whether it's typing transcription or again, managing someone's calendar. There's a lot of opportunity for you to build your own little side business that really works on your time, on your schedule and wherever the military takes you. Can someone become driven or is it you're either driven or you're not driven? I think that we all grow and change. So I don't think that it's not necessarily that someone can't become driven. And we all have different periods of our life, too. And speaking as a mother, I know that there were times when my kids were young where maybe I wasn't as driven because I really wanted to spend more time at home when they were babies and I wanted a different kind of experience. Now, as my kids are growing, it's a lot easier to focus on my career because they don't need me the same way that they did. So I think that we all definitely have it inside us. We have to figure out what is important to us and what fulfills us. Because at the end of the day, that's what drives you. If, if being a stay-at-home parent is fulfilling for you, then that's what drives you. If launching a business is fulfilling for you, then that's going to drive you. If you know providing financial resources to your family drives you, then you'll start being more motivated to seek out opportunities. Sort of yourself, what are some pros and cons of being an entrepreneur? So <laughs> it's not a stable profession. I, and this is actually something I think I learned when I got fired from that agency is that I don't think any of our jobs are as stable as we thought they were. No, no, they're not. <laughs> I, I, liked getting handed a paycheck. I liked showing up, doing what I did, performing it well, being proud of my work and getting handed the paycheck for it. And then being an entrepreneur, I was like, yes, I get to control my schedule and I don't have to work on Fridays if I don't want to. Like it looks very sexy online. But then you realize that if you're not going out and finding the clients. If you are not going out and finding the revenue to come in, it doesn't just magically appear like your paycheck did. So, you know, the, I, I love the free time. I like saying, oh, I'm taking this week off because we're taking a trip as a family. Definitely not something I could do as an employee. But as, as an entrepreneur, you, you are beholden to the business 24-7 because you have to make sure that the business is thriving. You're the one that's responsible for that. So Shauna, next, uh, so I'm, I'm presuming that your, your husband like 100% supports you. Can you talk about I the point? So. Can you talk about the points of your spouse or loved ones or whoever's close to you supporting you versus like being negative or being neutral? Yeah, of course. My husband supports me and he also really grounds me because I get big ideas and I'm like going to go out and do it. And he's like, hey, let's stop. Let's have a conversation about this and, you know, think wait, what direction you're really going with that. I think the biggest moment of support for me with him, and I remember this really distinctly, when I launched my business, I told him what I wanted to do. He knew the marketing work that I had been doing. And he looked at me and he said, well, honey, that sounds great. I'm so glad that you're excited about this, but is anyone going to pay you for that? And I said, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And he said, all right. And 
I said I was going to figure it out. So he suggested that we take out a loan for childcare so that I could have the kids in childcare and I could focus 100% on getting this thing off the ground. Um, within the first 30 days of launching my business, I got my first client and it wasn't necessary, but just him putting that out there. It's not something that I would have thought to do. I would have bootstrapped it and tried to figure out how to manage the childcare and manage the sales calls and all that kind of stuff. But he suggested that we do that. And that was just a big moment for me when I knew I had his support a hundred percent and his confidence has definitely given me confidence in my ability to run and grow this business. Rana, can you talk about how you got your first customer? Was it like, you know, just luck? You had a plan? Was it a friend or, or like somebody you didn't know? How did that all come about? Because the first customer is always the how toughest, right? My first client? Yes. That was actually the easiest, crazy enough. So I didn't have a, a non-compete with the agency that I was working with. So when I left, I sent out emails to my client saying, I'm not working there anymore. I wish you the best. And I had one of them reach back out to me and they said, we don't want to be there anymore either. We want to work with you. So within the first 30 days, one of those clients signed with me and that kicked me off for the first six months of my business. So let me get this right. This company fired you, but they didn't deal with non-compete with you. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I mean, they would have had to do it in the beginning when, yeah. uh, when they hired me. Yeah. It was all, it was all gold and it was all gold in the beginning, you know, like we wanted to work together and it, it was working really well for the first couple of months, but then it was, you know, and that's another reason why I'm not too concerned about growing my business too quickly because I want to grow it right. I don't want to grow it so fast just to say I hit this number, right? I make this much money. I want to grow it slowly enough. So it, it, it's still functioning properly for myself and for my clients. So you're in Germany. I'm going to guess most of your clients in the United States. How do you handle, um, how do you, how do you handle the, the time, the time differences? That's, that's an interesting question because when we learned that we were moving over here, we're super excited. We're going to live in Europe. But one of the first things that I said, you know, I've been building this business for three years. I'm not just giving it up because we're, we're moving to Germany. So this has been a, a little bit of give and take on my part because I want to keep the business going, but I have to work at a time that works for my clients. So when I have my client calls, I take them all at night after the kids go to bed. Um, unless they're on the East Coast, sometimes first thing in the morning for them is last thing at, in the afternoon for me before I shut down business for the day. Um, it's definitely not always fun doing my work at night, but most of the work I do during the day, and then I have my check-ins with my clients in the evenings. So how, how should a startup do this? Like the startup out there, a founder, whatever, they know they bring on marketing, but they're trying to decide, should they bring on an internal marketing person or someone like you? How do you advise these people like to make the decision on internal versus uh, like outsourcing? Well, really what it comes down to is funds. Um, you know, you have to have, a, if you're going to bring someone on internally, you want to make sure that you have their salary covered for months. Um, somebody who's coming on internally likely is also a W-2 employee. So are you paying their benefits 
you know, their vacation time, their insurance? What does that look like? Is that something that the company is actually poised to take on at this point in time? And if that is, and if you've got a really strong job description and you can find a person who fills all of those needs for your company, then yeah, take someone on internally. That's great. But if you're not quite there yet, you're not really interested in paying health benefits. <laughs> if you want someone to, to kind of own the program, but you're not looking for someone who just does one section of the marketing, then yeah, you might want to look for somebody fractional. And the funny thing is that in other parts of the startup world, this is actually very common. We see fractional um, CFOs, fractional uh, financial officers, fractional tech uh, technical founders. So we, we in the startup world, we see a lot of fractional people coming onto the C-suite of the company to fill in different gaps. Uh, but we don't see fractional marketing directors a lot. So it's they, they say that in, if you're launching something and there's no market for it, you know, you're either a genius because this is never done before and you've got the next best thing or you're really screwed because the reason nobody does it is because there's no market for it. Right. Um, and I have just found that there actually is a market for this. <laughs> Donna, is there anything else that I asked you that haven't, that haven't asked you yet? No, I think we've had a great conversation. Um, I forgot to ask you to do a pre, to ask you this in the pre-talk. Well, we can have any kind of gift or resource to give to the listeners. Well, I would love for listeners to go listen to my podcast. That's at startuprenegades.com. It's on all of the different platforms right now. Um, so definitely go give that a listen, give it a review. I think there's so much to learn from listening to the stories of people who have come before us and really seen what strategies they've used to make their businesses successful. Uh, I think that is, that's my favorite resource right now. Shona, can you give us your social media for yourself and your company so people can reach out to you? Sure. I keep all my social media pretty tight. So you can find me on Instagram at Shauna, S-H-A-U-N-A dot Armitage, A-R-M-I-T-A-G-E. And that's the best place to connect. You can listen if we have the link to our podcast and to our social media on the show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cavernsachelblog.com. And be sure to share this episode and subscribe to it. Also, don't forget about crowdfund our crowdfunding campaign at https slash crowdfunding. So, Shauna, what can we talk? Can you give us any wisdom or advice or anything you want to talk about? I think marketing is so important for every company, no matter what stage that you're at. And the best thing that you can do is market before you're ready, because there's nothing worse than having your big launch or your big reveal. And there's crickets because nobody knows that what you're doing exists. So you always have to market before you're ready. You always need to market with an open mind and you should always be looking for help or feedback. That doesn't necessarily mean hiring a marketer like me. It could be reaching out to your community and asking for mentorship. It could be running market studies and asking random people in Facebook groups, you know, what they think about what you're doing. But when we ask questions and we look for feedback, that's what makes us all continue to evolve and get better. Sona, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. And remember to be great every day. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Jason Cabinets Experience. 
We're asking for your support for our rewards-based crowdfunding campaign for Cabinets HR, either through your donation or by sharing this link with your networks. We are doing a rewards-based crowdfunding campaign to continue the build-out of Cabinets HR. Go to https colon backslash backslash cabinetshr.co slash crowdfunding for more details and to donate. Thank you for your time today and remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you and remember to be great every day. You know, pump it up. You've got to pump it up. Don't you know?